Section 11 of Character. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Character by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 3, Part C. Companionship and Examples. It was a fine trait in the character of Prince Albert that he was always so ready to express generous admiration of the good deeds of others. He had the greatest delight, says the ablest delineator of his character, in anybody else saying a fine saying or doing a great deed. He would rejoice over it and talk about it for days, and whether it was a thing nobly said or done by a little child or by a veteran statesman, it gave him equal pleasure. He delighted in humanity, doing well on any occasion and in any manner. No quality, said Dr. Johnson, will get a man more friends than a sincere admiration of the qualities of others. It indicates generosity of nature, frankness, cordiality, and cheerful recognition of merit. It was to the sincere, it might almost be said, the reverential admiration of Johnson by Boswell, that we owe one of the best biographies ever written one is disposed to think that there must have been some genuine good qualities in boswell to have been attracted by such a man as johnson and to have kept faithful to his worship in spite of rebuffs and snubbings innumerable macaulay speaks of boswell as an altogether contemptible person as a coxcomb and a bore weak vain pushing curious garrulous and without wit, humor, or eloquence. But Carlyle is doubtless more just in his characterization of the biographer, in whom, vain and foolish though he was in many respects, he sees a man penetrated by the old reverent feeling of discipleship, full of love and admiration for true wisdom and excellence. Without such qualities, Carlyle insists, the life of Johnson never could have been written. Boswell wrote a good book, he says, because he had a heart and an eye to discern wisdom, and an utterance to render it forth, because of his free insight, his lively talent, and above all, of his love and childlike open-mindedness. Most young men of generous mind have their heroes, especially if they be book-readers. Thus Alan Cunningham, when a mason's apprentice in Nithsdale, walked all the way to Edinburgh, for the sole purpose of seeing Sir Walter Scott as he passed along the street. We unconsciously admire the enthusiasm of the lad and respect the impulse which impelled him to make the journey. It is related of Sir Joshua Reynolds that when a boy of ten, he thrust his hand through intervening rows of people to touch Pope, as if there were a sort of virtue in the contact. At a much later period, the painter Haydon was proud to see and to touch Reynolds when on a visit to his native place. Rogers the poet used to tell of his ardent desire when a boy to see Dr. Johnson, but when his hand was on the knocker of the house in Bolt Court, his courage failed him and he turned away. So the late Isaac Disraeli, when a youth, called at Bolt Court for the same purpose, and though he had the courage to knock, to his dismay he was informed by the servant that the great lexicographer had breathed his last only a few hours before on the contrary small and ungenerous minds cannot admire heartily to their own great misfortune they cannot recognize much less reverence great men and great things the mean nature admires meanly the toad's highest idea of beauty is his toadess 
The small snob's highest idea of manhood is the great snob. The slave dealer values a man according to his muscles. When a guinea trader was told by Sir Godfrey Kneller in the presence of Pope that he saw before him two of the greatest men in the world, he replied, I don't know how great you may be, but I don't like your looks. I have often bought a man much better than both of you together, all bones and muscles, for ten guineas. Although Rochefoucauld, in one of his maxims, says that there is something that is not altogether disagreeable to us in the misfortunes of even our best friends, it is only the small and essentially mean nature that finds pleasure in the disappointment and annoyance at the success of others. There are, unhappily for themselves, persons so constituted that they have not the heart to be generous. The most disagreeable of all people are those who sit in the seat of the scorner. Persons of this sort often come to regard the success of others, even in a good work, as a kind of personal offense. They cannot bear to hear another praised, especially if he belong to their own art, or calling, or profession. They will pardon a man's failures, but cannot forgive his doing a thing better than they can do. And where they have themselves failed, they are found to be the most merciless of detractors. The sour critic thinks of his rival. When heaven with such parts has blessed him, have I not reason to detest him? The mean mind occupies itself with sneering, carping, and fault-finding, and is ready to scoff at everything but impudent effrontery or successful vice. The greatest consolation of such persons are the defects of men of character. If the wise erred not, says George Herbert, it would go hard with fools. Yet, though wise men may learn of fools by avoiding their errors, fools rarely profit by the example which wise men set them. A German writer has said that it is a miserable temper that cares only to discover the blemishes in the character of great men or great periods. Let us rather judge them with the charity of Bolingbroke, who, when reminded of one of the alleged weaknesses of Marlborough, observed, He was so great a man that I forgot he had that defect. Admiration of great men, living or dead, naturally evokes imitation of them in a greater or less degree. While a mere youth, the mind of Themistocles was fired by the great deeds of his contemporaries, and he longed to distinguish himself in the service of his country. When the Battle of Marathon had been fought, he fell into a state of melancholy. When asked by his friends as to the cause, he replied, that the trophies of Miltiades would not suffer him to sleep. A few years later we find him at the head of the Athenian army, defeating the Persian fleet of Xerxes, battles of Artemisium and Salamis, his country gratefully acknowledging that it had been saved through his wisdom and valor. Related of Thucydides that, when a boy, he burst into tears on hearing Herodotus read his history and the impression made upon his mind was such as to determine the bent of his own genius. Demosthenes was so fired on one occasion by the eloquence of Callistratus that the ambition was roused within him of becoming an orator himself. Yet Demosthenes was physically weak, had a feeble voice, indistinct articulation, and shortness of breath defects which he was only enabled to overcome by diligent study and invincible determination. 
but with all his practice he never became a ready speaker all his orations especially the most famous of them exhibiting indications of careful elaboration the art and industry of the orator being visible in almost every sentence similar illustrations of character imitating character and moulding itself by the style and manner and genius of great men are to be found pervading all history warriors statesmen orators patriots poets and artists all have been more or less unconsciously nurtured by the lives and actions of others living before them or presented for their imitation great men have evoked the admiration of kings popes and emperors Systemidesis never spoke to Michelangelo without uncovering, and Julius III made him sit by his side while a dozen cardinals were standing. Charles V made way for Titian, and one day, when the brush dropped from the painter's hand, Charles stooped and picked it up, saying, You deserve to be served by an emperor. Leo X threatened with excommunication whoever should print and sell the poems of Ariosto without the author's consent. The same pope attended the deathbed of Raphael, as Francis I did that of Leonardo da Vinci. Haydn once archly observed that he was loved and esteemed by everybody except professors of music. All the greatest musicians were unusually ready to recognize each other's greatness. Haydn himself seems to have been entirely free from petty jealousy. His admiration of the famous Porpora was such that he resolved to gain admission to his house and serve him as a valet having made the acquaintance of the family with whom porpora lived he was allowed to officiate in that capacity each morning he took care to brush the veteran's coat polish his shoes and put his rusty wig in order at first porpora growled at the intruder but his asperity soon softened and eventually melted into affection he quickly discovered his valet's genius and by his instructions directed it into the line in which haydn eventually acquired so much distinction haydn himself was enthusiastic in his admiration of handel he is the father of us all he said on one occasion scarlatti followed handel in admiration all over italy and when his name was mentioned he crossed himself in token of veneration mozart's recognition of the great composer was not less hearty when he chooses, said he, Handel strikes like the thunderbolt. Beethoven hailed him as the monarch of the musical kingdom. Beethoven was dying. One of his friends sent him a present of Handel's works in forty volumes. They were brought into his chamber, and gazing on them with reanimated eye, he exclaimed, pointing at them with his finger, There! There is the truth! Haydn not only recognized the genius of the great men who had passed away, but of his young contemporaries, Mozart and Beethoven. Small men may be envious of their fellows, but really great men seek out and love each other. Of Mozart, Haydn wrote, I only wish I could impress on every friend of music, and on great men in particular, the same depth of musical sympathy and profound appreciation of Mozart's inimitable music that I myself feel and enjoy then nations would vie with each other to possess such a jewel within their frontiers prague ought not only to strive to retain this precious man but also to remunerate him for without this the history of a great genius is sad indeed it enrages me to think 
that the unparalleled Mozart is not yet engaged by some imperial or royal court. Forgive my excitement, but I love the man so dearly. Mozart was equally generous in his recognition of the merits of Haydn. Sir, he said to a critic, speaking of the latter, if you and I were both melted down together, we should not furnish materials for one Haydn. And when Mozart first heard Beethoven, he observed, Listen to that young man. Be assured that he will yet make a great name in the world. Buffon set Newton above all other philosophers, and admired him so highly that he had always his portrait before him while he sat at work. So Schiller looked upon Shakespeare, whom he studied reverently and zealously for years, until he became capable of comprehending nature at first hand, and then his admiration became even more ardent than before. Pitt was Canning's master and hero, whom he followed and admired with attachment and devotion. To one man while he lived, said Canning, I was devoted with all my heart and all my soul. Since the depth of Mr. Pitt, I acknowledge no leader. My political allegiance lies buried in his grave. A French physiologist, Monsieur Rowe, was occupied one day in lecturing to his pupils, when Sir Charles Bell, whose discoveries were even better known and more highly appreciated abroad than at home, strolled into his classroom. The professor, recognizing his visitor, at once stopped his exposition, saying, Messieurs, c'est assez preux, ajouterie, vous avez vu Sir Charles Bell. The first acquaintance with a great work of art has usually proved an important event in every young artist's life. When Correggio first gazed on Raphael's Saint Cecilia, he felt within himself an awakened power and exclaimed, and I, too, am a painter. So Constable used to look back on his first sight of Claude's picture of Hagar as forming an epoch in his career. Sir George Beaumont's admiration of the same picture was such that he always took it with him in his carriage when he traveled from home. The examples set by the great and good do not die. They continue to live and speak to all the generations that succeed them. It was very impressively observed by Mr. Disraeli in the House of Commons shortly after the death of Mr. Cobden. There is this consolation remaining to us, when we remember our unequaled and irreparable losses, that those great men are not altogether lost to us, that their words will often be quoted in this house, that their examples will often be referred to and appealed to, and that even their expressions will form part of our discussions and debates, there are now, I may say, some members of Parliament who, though they may not be present, are still members of this House, who are independent of disillusions, of the caprices of constituencies, and even of the course of time. I think that Mr. Cobden was one of those men. It is the great lesson of biography to teach what man can be and can do at his best. It may thus give each man renewed strength and confidence the humblest in sight of even the greatest may admire and hope and take courage these great brothers of ours in blood and lineage who live a universal life still speak to us from their graves and beckon us on in the paths which they have trod their example is still with us to guide to influence and to direct us for nobility of character is a perpetual bequest living from age to age and constantly tending to reproduce its like. The sage, say the Chinese, is the instructor of a hundred ages. 
when the manners of lu are heard of the stupid become intelligent and the wavering determined thus the acted life of a good man continues to be a gospel of freedom and emancipation to all who succeed him to live in hearts we leave behind is not to die the golden words that good men have uttered the examples they have set live through all time they pass into the thoughts and hearts of their successors help them on the road of life and often console them in the hour of death and the most miserable and most painful of deaths said henry martin the commonwealth man who died in prison is as nothing compared with the memory of a well-spent life and great alone is he who has earned the glorious privilege of bequeathing such a lesson and example to his successors end of section eleven